Let us turn our hearts in a moment of prayer and reflection. Loving God, you give us words of peace, words of hope. May they be words that touch our lives, our challenges, that we may grow closer to sharing this gift given at Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was talking with a friend of mine this week, and she was telling me about the troubles that her neighbor has been having. The neighbor is a very successful businessman, and he just got married. And so that changed the dynamic in the neighborhood a little bit, and everyone was talking about the new wife. She's very, very glamorous, very good-looking. And they're quite the couple, because she's really good-looking, and he's really rich. He's a successful entrepreneur, so of course he likes to drive a fancy car. Right now, he's driving a Hummer. Hummers are about the size of a tank. Crazy thing is, his new wife is a very, very petite woman. If she's five foot tall, I'd be amazed. And she has a terrible time climbing up into that Hummer, and she cannot, she does not feel comfortable trying to drive it. It's just, you know, she, she's lost inside those things. And so, he decided, well, maybe my new wife should have her own car. So he went out and, as a surprise, bought her a bright red Mazda Miata. Really nice two-seater sports car, very compact, fits her beautifully. Only problem is, his new wife is now pregnant. Mazda Miatas are a two-seater car. There's no back seat. There's no place to put the baby in the back seat. So as much as he loved this new Mazda Miata that he got his wife, the Mazda Miata had to go. Then he decided, well, we're going to be a family. Maybe we should go camping in the summertime. So he went and bought a camper van. You know, the kind that has the, uh, the uh, table folds down to turn into the bed. It's got the uh, stove and the fridge and the porta potty and everything like that. Really great for camping. Still no back seat for the car seat. Didn't also help that this beautiful young wife was also a real city girl who had never been camping a day in her life. I don't know what the next car was. I lost track after that. But my friend was letting me know that the marriage has now fallen apart. Turns out that the troubles in the driveway were merely symptoms of the troubles that were brewing inside the house. The husband thought the way to show his love for his wife was to take care of everything and that he made all the important decisions for his wife, down to the smallest detail. He wasn't willing to share control of the marriage with his wife, and so there was no peace in their life together. Who has the power? Who has the power is always an important issue in every relationship. It doesn't matter whether it's at home or at work or in the community. And when most of us talk about power, we talk as if we don't have any. We talk because we feel like we're powerless in our relationships. We feel like we're being played as meaningless pawns at the workplace who are expendable. We act as if we're not able to affect the direction of our community and no one is listening. Many people experience themselves as not having any significant power in their lives. Women think men have all the power. Men think nothing happens unless the wife gives her permission. Some black people think white people have all the power, and some white people think whoever complains the loudest, they're the ones who have the power. Everyone's got it, except me. That's because we usually define power as the ability to make things happen, to get other people to do what I want. 
We get this kind of power from having things like money, political positions, or controlling the means of violence. And that's the coercive power of domination. But the coercive power of dominating others is not the greatest or the best form of power that there is. There is a greater power in this world, which we already have within us. The greatest power in the world is the God-given power we have to manage our own lives and to maximize our own future possibilities. The greatest form of power you see is not coercive power over others. It is the persuasive power you have over yourself. Because only by listening to your own persuasive power can you choose to become your fullest potential self. And this persuasive power is the most effective influence we have over others. While you may be able to, for a while, to be able to force somebody to do what you want, isn't it always more effective if that person chooses to do what is right on their own? That's the power of persuasion. It respects the choices that the other individual has to make for themselves. Persuasion invites them to make the better choice for themselves. If you've ever been a parent of a child, you'll know how hard that is. It's much easier, child, go here. When the child learns that magical word of, no, the world has changed because you've lost that power and control. And it's a lot harder to convince that child that this is the better thing to do, but you do know that when that child does choose it for themselves, they own it in a very different way. Persuasion invites them to make the better choice for themselves. Persuasive power is the kind of power God has and uses with us. God invites us to seek the better way. God offers us the best choices possible in every moment of every day, in every situation. And this is the amazing thing. God respects our ability to make our own choices and the choices that we make. We have to choose to follow God's ways. God can't make us do that, and God can't do that for us. Only we can choose to follow the ways of God. And that's the power that we, once we're on it, we want to stay with it, because we know it is the right thing. Now, our society is really based on the belief that the power of the individual can accomplish great things. Unfortunately, we are rarely taught to trust in that power that we do have. We're encouraged to give it away all too often. If we want to make over our appearance, we're encouraged to hire a styling consultant. If we want to lose weight, we must seek the guidance of a professional trainer. A lot of our life is made up of us giving away our power to somebody else. Instead of learning how to use our own power to its fullest potential. And that includes our relationships. The vast majority of the problems we face in our relationships happen because we confuse giving up our power with love. And when people choose to use coercive power over others to dominate them instead of using persuasive power to build others up, it's easy to understand why our relationships often become such complex, twisted affairs. We've all seen relationships that got very dysfunctional when someone is trying to control the other in ways that no person should ever, ever be allowed to. A loving relationship can be easily destroyed by the use of coercive power to dominate instead of using that helpful power of persuasive love that sets us free. 
So sadly, in our world today, we often equate being in love with giving away our power. We have very few role models which teach us how to hang on to our power even as we give ourselves to someone else. There are times when we do need to be able to give of ourselves to others. A committed life together cannot happen if both parties aren't willing to give of themselves freely on a daily basis. But we should never equate self-giving and self-sacrifice with being a doormat, with giving up of sex or allowing our self-esteem to be assaulted. Real love can never justify acts of physical or emotional or sexual violence. The truth is you cannot love someone else if you do not have a self. You have to love yourself before you can love another. And you must respect who you are before you can share what you are with somebody that you care for. Real love respects the personal power the other has. Real love enhances your power and also the power of the person that you're loving. True love only happens when mutual power is respected and growing. So there's a fine art in knowing when to let your power go so theirs can grow. So who has the power really matters. When I read that account of John the Baptist this morning, I was struck by how the scriptures start off by making a big deal telling us who is in power. Tiberius is the emperor, the 15th year of his reign, so don't forget that part. Below him is Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of the province of Syria, which includes Judea. And below him are all the sons of Herod, who run, run, ruin, run, they run ruin over the districts of Judea and Galilee. And below them are the high priests who rule over the temple. And they're all named for a reason. They're all named because we all have to account for the way we have used our power over others. John the Baptist sets the stage for Jesus by calling the people to account for how they've used their power. He calls on them to repent and to focus on the ways of God. He prepares the people for the message that Jesus is bringing and the message of Christmas is that Jesus comes to bring peace to our world. He is the Prince of Peace. And the peace of Christ comes when we learn how to respect the power that others have. To have peace means that you seek the best for that other person, even when their self-interests are not the same as your own. Peace does not come from me telling you what you must do. Peace is not something you can demand. Because peace grows out of a healthy, caring relationship. This means that true peace cannot come when we are fearing one another. It cannot come if we're not willing to welcome the stranger in. John's call to repentance reminds us that if we want to change the world, we must start by addressing our own behavior and the impact our power has on others. There cannot be peace in the world if we're constantly turning our back on this world. We cannot ignore the consequences our actions have on other people, especially if we want there to be peaceful relationships. We have to be responsible for what we've done intentionally and unintentionally. Peace comes when we learn how to live in harmony with this constantly evolving, complex world. The power of peace is the ability to find a just harmony in every relationship. 
The power of peace seeks the well-being of everyone. A couple years ago, I went down to a conference in North Carolina to a Christian festival, and one of the speakers there left a lasting impression on me. His name was Fred Banson. He was a young man in his 30s now. And he told his story how he felt called to ministry. And when he graduated from seminary in 2001, he was a high, noble-minded guy, and he decided he didn't want to be a pastor in a congregation. He wanted to make a difference. So he joined the Christian peacemaking teams, that's a group that sends Christians into conflict areas in the world to create trust and healing. And so for four years, he worked for the Christian peacemaking teams in several parts of the world. And then Fred Banson was offered a very unlikely job. It turns out that the United Methodist Church in Cedar Grove, North Carolina, had received the gift of a plot of land, and they wanted to create a community garden and they wanted Fred Banson to build the garden. And he had to say to them, I don't know anything about gardening. And they said, yeah, but you've got another set of skills we do need. Because Cedar Grove, North Carolina, was still a very racially segregated town in 2005. The church was mostly white. The community was mostly black. And the piece of land that they had been given was on the black side of town. And many in the congregation were not happy that the church was going to be growing food for the whole community. And they didn't think it was their job to feed those kind of people who were not worthy of such generous effort. So Banson's job was much more than helping people grow organic vegetables. His job was to build a community of racial reconciliation and peace. And Banson worked for five years to build trust between the two sides of that town. And ultimately, it was the common love of the land and the food that it produced that brought people together. People were expected to work so many hours a week, and they were really encouraged if they could come on Saturdays, because that's the day everyone would be together. And they worked to build up that organic garden to make it healthy. They worked hard to build up a sense of trust amongst the people there. And every Saturday, they would hold a worship service in the garden. And there, standing in between the rows of vegetables, they would share communion, recognizing that the soil was part of the gift that was given. And they would end that Saturday workday with a communal potluck meal. One of the mottos of that community garden was that you have to give back to the soil more than you take out of it. You have to give back to the soil more than what you take out of it. And that's a principle of organic farming. It's how you make the soil be productive. But Banson discovered that's also how you make a community to be healthy and productive as well. You have to put more in than you take out. Banson says that to grow and share food with others in a garden is to enter into a holy country. Such a garden is a place where the power of peace seeks the well-being of all. At this special time of year, we are invited to build such a place where God's peace is shared, a place where all are welcomed in, a place where we share the power of God to feed all who hunger and lift up all who've been trampled down, where peace and justice flow like a mighty river, where we are all blessed by the coming of Jesus into our world.
Amen.